The Sicilians in New Orleans have celebrated St. Joseph altars as a manifestation of prayer and devotion. We talked to Sandra Scalisi Juno about her life's experience with St. Joseph altars and her new book, It's on the Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Sandra Scalisi Juno. She is an expert on St. Joseph altars all over, but especially those altars that happen in New Orleans. So, welcome. Well, thank you, Liz. It's such a delight to be here and such a pleasure to be able to share this information. I know that you've written a new book. It's called Celebrating with St. Joseph Altars. And I know it's going to be hitting the bookshelves very, very soon. And so we're going to talk about that after we whet people's appetite for the book by talking about St. Joseph Altars. So let me ask you, tell us a little bit about St. Joseph Altars in general, and how they came to New Orleans and become so important here? Well, you know, in Louisiana, we have a large Sicilian population, which is unique to the United States. I know and you then, and I both, you and I both share that heritage. Yes, yes that wonderful heritage. <laughs> yes. And a lot of these young men were recruited after the civil war to work in the cane fields because mm -hmm. of the late because of the labor shortage so that's how the majority but new orleans had had a connection with sicily way before then there was shipping going back and forth between palermo and new orleans prior to uh the ending of the civil war as you well know so as these young men would come spend their two years to work in the cane fields to pay for their passage they would then send for the rest of the family some of them went back to Sicily, but the majority of them stayed and sent for their families. They eventually went into the farming industry and into the grocery business. And all of our Louisiana Creole Italian foods are connected to those Sicilian Im immigrants who came over here. And so one of their practices was to celebrate St. Joseph's Day. Yes, you know, that's an old tradition that went back um, so little had been written about the St. Joseph Altar tradition until probably the mid 20th century. But according to legend, this oral tradition passed down from family to family. The tradition went back to a time in the Middle Ages when there was a famine in Sicily and the people of Sicily prayed to St. Joseph as their protector of the family for relief from the famine. So the St. Joseph Altar tradition has always been about abundance, thankfulness, um, promise, petition. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful tradition that has so much richness to it. And as it was brought to New Orleans, um, the Sicilian in Louisiana's fertile soil, the tradition began to change and take on some of the traditions and foods of, of, of this region. So it became more enriched and it continues to grow even today. So how has it how has it changed over the years? 
it's amazing, Liz. Um, there's a commonality to all St. Joseph altars. Number one, no two St. Joseph altars will ever be the same. Each one is totally unique because of the artistry of the people who prepare them, the types of foods, whatever their choices are in linens and flowers and such. However, the commonality is that a St. Joseph altar is done in tribute to the trilogy, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So it's usually prepared on a tabletop with three steps above the tabletop. So it's three tiers and each tier is dedicated to St. Joseph at the top, Mary in the middle and, and Jesus at the last tier. So all of the foods are prepared with a religious symbolism. If you take apart a St. Joseph altar piece by piece and you look at each individual item, the richness of tradition is so extraordinary. There's so much to see when you see a St. Joe's Vault. It's overwhelming. But when you take it apart piece by piece and you realize all that goes into it, all of the history, all of those recipes that go back centuries, it's truly extraordinary that it has continued in such a beautiful way. So I remember when I was a child, there were many more individual altars in people's homes than there are now. And you could see in the newspaper that there would actually be a whole section in the classifieds where people would announce that they were having a St. Joseph altar and were welcoming people to know about that altar so that they could come and visit. I don't see that so much anymore. You know, people are having private St. Joseph altars within their family, but not open to the public. But I think what the change came about right after World War II, most of the altars were held in homes, sometimes in storefronts mm -hmm. um, of Sicilian owned businesses. But um, after World War II, there was such a surge of interest, you know, with husbands and sons away at war, so much need for prayer, for sustainability, that the tradition outgrew most homes. So they were then brought to large institutions. In my grandmother's uh, case, she brought her St. Joseph altar to the convent of the Good Shepherd, which was on Bienville Street. So tell me about your grandmother um, brought her altar. So, so for me, Liz, the beginning for me was in my grandmother's kitchen. As a young child, my first encounter with St. Joseph altars was when, I, at around age five, I was told that I was going to be married for my, my grandmother, St. Joseph Altar. I had no idea what that meant, but I knew that I was pretty special all that year. And I was told on the Feast of Santa Lucia, which is December 13th. So all the rest of that year, up until March 19th, I knew I was special. Well, the specialness of St. Joseph's Altar has really lived within me, has grown with me. I have grown with it. From my grandmother's kitchen, where right after Christmas, she would gather her crew of workers. We would have cousins come in from out of state to help with the baking. The, the joy of their voices, I can't begin to tell you, Liz, and this was in multiple Sicilian dialects, but the joy of their voices, I knew there was something special about this tradition. Not to mention the smells, you know, <laughs> the aroma of anise and, and, and uh, oh my goodness, you know, uh, lemon and all those wonderful flavors coming out of that kitchen. So as a young child, I knew it was special. Then I started noticing that other people were noticing. There were articles in the Dixie Roto magazine. Do you remember that one in the I city? Do. Yes. Um, and, and then there were exhibits 
there was an exhibit at Delgado Museum of Art, which is now New Orleans Museum of Art, where my grandmother made her kushidabi, the lacy fig cakes, and they were displayed on an altar in front of a magnificent painting of St. Joseph by a 15th century artist, that it's, which is still in the collection at the um, New Orleans Museum of Art today. But that was extraordinary. Then in the 60s, um, late 60s, my grandmother passed away. I had watched her year after year after year. And I kept saying, we called her mommy. Mommy, show me what you're doing. Show me. No, too busy right now. Next year, next year. Well, I watched. And when, this is the most extraordinary thing. When she passed away, I picked up her little tools. And to this day, it's like her hand is guiding me as I'm carving those kuchidati. It's this, there's this connection. It's hard to describe. But after she passed away, her younger sisters, she was the oldest of five. Her younger sisters taught me everything that they knew about the tradition. And then I started asking questions. What does this mean? Well, why do we do it this way? And most of the answers were, well, because we always did. <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but I dug a little deeper, asked other people, uh, listened a lot, and, and then just really became so interested in it. I actually, in 2007, traveled to my grandmother's hometown in Sicily, Poggiariale, and I baked in the home of the Salvaggio sisters. Uh, I'm sure they're related to Salvaggio's in New Orleans. There's a huge Quadriello connection in New Orleans. But these ladies are members of an organization called L'Association Pro Loco, which is all over Italy where they celebrate local arts and crafts. Mm -hmm. So these women have this, this amazing ability to make these fig cakes in what they call squartucciati, which means lace making, and truly their cakes look like lace. So I spent the day really just watching them. Extra I could never replicate what they do. What I do is something I learned from my grandmother. It's a little bit different, but their work is, is absolutely extraordinary. So um, things just kind of, you know, developed. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's been an extraordinary privilege for me, really. So tell us what you talked about, you were going to be married that year. So tell us about that part of the altar. Oh, so extraordinary. I don't know if much of your audience who will be listening to this knows about the Chupa Chupa uh, tradition, but I'm going to explain it. Okay. Chupa Chupa means knock, knock. So three children, usually the grandchildren of the person hosting the, the St. Joseph altar, but now it can be as many as a dozen people. It could be adults, you know, traditions change. But in, in our case, it was three children, myself, my cousin Joseph, and another cousin. And we were Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And we, we were dressed, actually just in Sunday dress. We weren't in costume. Mm -hmm. But the tradition is to knock on three doors. So this was inside my grandmother's house. So we would knock at the first door. And at the first door, we were told through the closed door, there's no room for you here. This is a replication of the Bethlehem story. Mm -hmm. so, so at the second door, Joseph knocks on the door and asks, can we come in? Do you have a place for us to stay? There's no room for you here. So then we knocked at the third door. At the third door, when we knocked, I barely heard the words. The door was open. Welcome. Come in. The feast has been prepared for you. And it was so extraordinary to me. And I still feel it today. My grandmother's dining room, which I knew quite well, was so transformed. 
that when I walked in, there was this overwhelming sense of joy that I still feel every time I get that aroma, that abundance, that abundanza that you get when you go to a St. Joseph altar. There's no other way to describe it. It's extraordinary. And so then did you eat or did you just look at the altar? So what happened then? According, according to tradition, the, uh, the altar is then blessed in a special ceremony. A priest from the, from the um, neighborhood church is, is invited to uh, proceed. So there's a special blessing. Um, and then the saints and the priest are seated at a special table that's been prepared for them and are given a small taste of everything on the altar. And there's a ritual to that. The meal begins with fruit. Uh, it's usually orange, grapefruit, and maybe uh, a cherry or just three fruit. Um, orange, grapefruit, a cherry or a strawberry. And that's just a little tiny taste. And that's whisked away. And then another little taste, maybe a little piece of, of a, a stuffed artichoke. And that's whisked away. And it's all done in tiny little bites and tastes. Well, when it got to the pasta con sarde, which is the pasta dish that's that's uh, has um, sardines and um, and sometimes anchovies in it, and it also has the greens, the the uh, finocchia, mm -hmm. uh, greens. My my cousin Joseph. That's fennel for those people who don't know. Yeah, it's it's actually anise. Fennel okay. is a anise. different vegetable. It's okay. wild anise, which is a thin anise. and it's a much more pungent taste than okay. fennel. Okay. Um, so my cousin, my, my, my younger cousin, Joseph, who was, I think he portrayed baby Jesus. Anyway, he took one look at the, the pasta with the green in it and wouldn't eat it. But guess what? By, at five years old, little Sandra, said, <laughs> because the blessed food could not be wasted. That's one of the traditions. This food had been blessed. It could not be wasted. So I ate my portion and his portion. <laughs> and then the courses kept coming. Fried kajuni, which is the, the fried kajun, uh, which is a wonderful vegetable. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's a springtime vegetable. Now it's available only on special order. Many wonderful dishes. Uh, frosia, which were the vegetable omelets uh, made with various types of vegetables, green beans or or um, maybe uh, collard greens or so many different varieties. And then in Louisiana, uh, you know, we have the variety of amazing seafoods. There was always a baked redfish that's stuffed with crab meat and shrimp. So we had a little taste of that. So the tasting went on until it got to tasting. Then at this point, my cousin said, you're not having any of mine because then came a taste of cannoli and then the various biscotti. <laughs> you know? So he wasn't pulling up any of the sweets. He wasn't going to um, share that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So according to, to tradition, first there's the, the, the tupa tupa, um, then the saints come in, then the, the priest blesses the altar, then the saints and the priest are, are served a special meal. And then after that meal is completed, then the altar is officially broken, which means that everyone who's invited to the altar is then invited to partake in the feast, to share in the feast. Now, in a private home, it's a little bit different than it is at a public display, because what happens at a public display, all of that food remains on the altar. Um, most of the baked foods, the cooked foods are whisked back into the kitchen, put into the refrigerator, are served to guests who come. In my grandmother's case at the convent of the Good Shepherd, they would set up tables outside in the, in the garden 
they served thousands of people. It was extraordinary to see people just came filing through, you know, and served plates of this amazing food. And then they would leave a donation, which mm-hmm. went to the sisters of the convent. Mm-hmm. It was the whole thing was all about generosity, about sharing. And even to today, it's changed so much, but that spirit of generosity is still there. Yes, yes. So also, I think that there's a, a camaraderie and a special kind of connection that those people who come together to cook together also must feel. It's amazing. If you walk into any kitchen, I always say where they're stuffing and, and, and ro- you're going to be stuffed by something. <laughs> you're either going to be a stuffed artichoke or a stuffed eggplant or a stuffed melaton or something. But you're also going to experience a camaraderie, that sense of connection. And as people are rolling out, Joe, it's the stories come rolling out. It's so extraordinary to me. And every time I've experienced this, baking with individuals in their home or in church groups, it happens every time. The stories just come rolling out with the dough. It's amazing, truly amazing. So those connections are, are sacred, truly sacred. And that's why I always think it's wonderful to have people of multiple generations there so that those stories can be passed on. Not just, not just shared among peers, absolutely. but also passed on to the younger generation. Absolutely. I am so blessed, Liz, this Christmas, we don't do a big St. Joseph altar in this family. I help with so many different other St. Joseph's altars. But at Christmas, we always bake together in my home. I had four generations in my home. Oh. Myself, my daughter, my twin granddaughters, and their babies. And the, young, the, the youngest was too young. But the three-year-old was so excited to be able to put those little sprinkles on the kuchidati. So now it's really a blessing to see that continuity through the uh, through the generations. It really is. My favorite thing um, was my my grandmother made the the Regina cookies, the ones with all of the uh, seeds, the sesame seeds on the outside. And I remember when those sacks of sesame seeds would come into her house. That was the signal, you know, we're going to be doing this. I always associate sesame seeds with my grandmother because of that. Right. And for me, it's the smell of anise. If I smell anise, I'm immediately transported back into the, the, the kitchen comfort of my grandmother's, you know, home. It's just this um, amazing, you know. But what was your family name, Liz? My grandfather's name was Bayamonte. So he was Francesco Bayamonte. And my mother was Giuseppina Biamonte. So that's why we went to every single St. Joseph altar that there was in town. And um, then my grandmother was Elisabetta Lecce. Uh-huh, Lecce. Uh-huh. Now that, that name is in my family also. Is we it? probably waited if we did probably far. Are, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> we probably um, are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's so much about this tradition that, that you know, is so extraordinary. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in, in the change, um, my relatives in, in Sicily still make the St. Joseph's altars in the same way. The pictures are extraordinary. They're exquisite in their simplicity. White linens, beautiful fresh greenery, oranges and lemons for color, and then the cookies, and, and then the cookies 
foods to put on just for the blessing and then taken off to be shared. I even have cousins who left Quadriali and moved to Australia. So I have this whole Australian group of cousins who do the St. Joseph's altars in that same way. The pictures of their altars even today are identical in that simplicity and elegance. What we've seen happen in New Orleans in the 60s, during that uh, Italian-American spurt of, yes. of um, you know, going back when, when the Sicilians came to Louisiana, they never referred to themselves as being Italian. Right. They were either Calabresi or, or uh, Trapanese or from their region. That was what they related to. They never related because Sicily had not been unified and they did not relate to being Italian. But then in the 60s, there was this spurt of Italian-American, you know, pride. What started popping up on, on St. Joseph's office in Louisiana were the colors of the Italian flag. You had red, white, and green bunting behind. You had red, white, and green flags. You even had lucky beans striped in red, white, and green. And when I look at that, it's, it's almost kind of a great to me, but it is what it is, you know. If a tradition is going to be allowed to live, it has to be allowed to grow and change. Mm -hmm. And just like a language, if, it, if it's static, it will be a dead language. So the tradition is living, it is growing, it is changing. And that's just one of the changes. What another amazing change that has occurred is how it's become multicultural. Mm -hmm. In Louisiana, we celebrate everything, you know that. <laughs> um, among our Hispanic, our African-American, even the Asian population, St. Joseph's Day is celebrated in special ways. And their St. Joseph altars reflect the artistry of that particular heritage. I had the privilege to teach at Xavier University through Dr. Um, Kim Vazdeval. Do you know Kim? Amazing, amazing woman. She invited me to teach a class of freshman students. We had an auditorium of 12 rounds of eight with freshman students who knew nothing about baking. And I'm explaining to them about this tradition. And we set up working stations where they prepared the dough. We had the big filling already prepared. And they were told, they were, they were asked what piece they would like to make. And I went around to each one and showed them how to start the process. And they did. It was, it was an amazing experience because the creativity of these kids just came through. It was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were so into it. You can't even imagine freshman students being so into an ancient tradition that they knew nothing about. As I'm explaining this to the class, I mentioned it's almost like pie making. You do a layer of dough, a layer of figs, and a layer of dough. And a hand went up in the back. How do you make a pie? And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I explained to the students, and, and I did this over a series of, I think, three, three or four years, and Xavier University put together a beautiful St. Joseph Alta each year. I don't know that they did last year, but of course, everything changed last year. Last year. But, um, but in the class, I explained to these students that your preparation of a Kuchidada is your prayer to St. Joseph. It's your way of offering your prayer to St. Joseph. So we want you to do the best that you can possibly do. And of course they had a choice. I said, okay, we can do, we can do fish or we can do crosses or we can do hearts, some of the traditional symbols, or you can do anything you'd like. So I went to one table and this young lady was making, and I couldn't recognize what she was doing. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm making an A plus. 
because that's my prayer. I want an A plus in this class. And if you look in the book, the author at, at Xavier University has Hakujadada with an A plus on it. Oh, oh <laughs> so, that's, that's wonderful. One of those priceless stories that I treasure, you know. I've been so privileged, Liz, to work with so many amazing people, to be connected to so many amazing people through this tradition. It's it's just been extraordinary. Mm, yes. Well, so tell our listeners a little bit about what a lucky bean is. You talked about a lucky bean, but a lot of people don't know. And some of the other kind of fun aspects like the lemons and other things like that about the altar. <laughs> <laughs> There are so many stories. There's one section of the book that I devoted to Little Miracles. And there's one of the stories of the three lemons in the book. So <laughs> extraordinary, extraordinary uh, true stories. Anyway, um, about the lucky bean. I'm not sure why it was called the lucky bean, but I know that it relates to during the famine of the Middle Ages, the only crop that grew was the fava bean. Uh, it's a hardy crop. It became, it became the sustaining crop for the people who were starving. Previously, it was only used as fodder for cattle. People really didn't eat fava beans. However, it became their sustaining crop. So it became a symbol of their hope. And, and I think it's a symbol of resilience. But when the, when the Sicilians came to New Orleans, for some reason, and I haven't found out yet, it became known as the lucky bean. And there are lots of stories related to the lucky bean. Oh my goodness, you can fill a book on that. Um, but every New Orleanian, I'm sure you have one, I should have one right next to me, has a lucky bean in the back of the drawer mm-hmm. or in the cash register or in the pocket or in or in a purse. You know, if I go to a jacket that I haven't worn in a couple of years and I reach in that pocket, this my friend, this my lucky bean. It's like this connection, you know. Um, It's just one of those symbols that is so rich going back so many years, the lucky bean. So the lucky beans are actually fava beans that have been roasted uh, and they have to be roasted. If they're not, then they won't hold up. Uh, Then they're blessed at the St. Joseph altar. So you have to have a blessed lucky bean, not any lucky bean. Right. And then, exactly. And then it will last, after it's been roasted, it will last for years. Mm -hmm. If it's not roasted, then it will just um, disintegrate, you know. So that's one of those special things. What the, the, the lemons, there are so many traditions about the lemon. The story is that if you steal a lemon off of the St. Joseph's altar, St. Joseph will help you find a husband. Don't ask me how. I mean, poor St. Joseph, he gets buried on his head to help you sell a house, <laughs> you know that. But this is one of those things. If you steal a lemon off of St. Joseph's altar, a blessed lemon, then you know St. Joseph will help you find a husband. Well, my story about the three lemons goes one step further. It's it's St. Joseph working overtime on this okay. one. <laughs> so what's the story? Well, tell, oh, tell you me. have to read the book. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's beautiful and, and a true story. It is an incredibly true story. And it's just, I, I, when, I, when I heard the story, I just shook my head, you know. But I heard one the other day. The sacredness of St. Joseph's altars is, is incredible. I just heard this story. There's a wonderful group of ladies in Lacombe who put together a St. Joseph's altar there. There are two different churches that I work with. And for one of the altars, the lady in charge um, would give the blessed candle off of the altar to each of the young children who portrayed the saints. Mm-hmm. So the little girl who was Mary 
was being raised by her grandmother. And for some reason, she hadn't picked up her candle. So the woman in charge of the altar said, well, I'm just going to drive over to her grandmother's house and bring it to her. True story. This just happened last year. She drove to her friend's home in Lacombe. And when she got there, the woman was kind of shaking in, in the window, kind of like she was trying to get her attention. She went into the house. The woman was having a stroke. She couldn't get to the phone. The, the person who brought the, the candle got to the phone, got the ambulance, got her into the hospital, saved her life. You think St. Joseph wasn't in charge with that? I mean, what's the chance of her bringing that candle on at that moment, at that time? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, you either believe it or you don't. Right. So, right. That's but true. it's about faith. It's about hope. It's about love. It's about abundance. It's about sharing. It's about all of those amazing things, you know. Well, we still have the St. Joseph's altar that you that you designed for us at the museum. And so that's always wonderful. And people are always happy to be able to see it because they've heard about it. But if they don't come at the right time, of course, there's no way that they can see one. Um, so I can't begin to tell you how gratifying it is to know that it's there year round as part of a permanent exhibit. As you know, as you may know, it is the only permanent St. Joseph altar in the city now. The one that was on display at the Italian American Museum that I put together, it was beautiful. They decided in renovation to take it down. They now have a photograph of the St. Joseph altar, but it's not the same. I saw the expressions of people as they came into the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, had never encountered a St. Joseph altar before, and they were awed by it. And I know that you still get that with people coming in. I, I just wanted to say how excited I am to talk to you about it and to see that the book that you had talked about writing is finally written. <laughs> well, you know, you know where the kernel came from for this book. In 1969, just after, right after my grandmother passed away, my family was invited by Mimi Sheraton. At the time, Mimi was head of events for Hallmark Card Company. She contacted our family through the Gust family in New Orleans and asked if we could bring a St. Joseph altar. This just play that she was doing was for six months. It was for festivals from around the world. She contacted us because her Italian friends in New York in 1969 had no idea what a St. Joseph altar is, was. Mm -hmm. That has changed now. St. Joseph altars are celebrating all over the United States now. But at that time, they were unaware. So we, when, when this invitation came, it was directed to my grandmother who had just passed away. Family members said it couldn't be done. And my mother and I said, oh yes, it, it's gonna be done. So Hallmark sent three, three airline tickets, one for me, one for mom, one for the cakes. Imagine this, you're getting on the plane with these boxes of cakes and I'm saying, don't touch my box. You know? <laughs> so we went up, they put up this amazing display. They sprayed the cakes with acrylics which uh, it was a six month display and it was wonderful. It was so well received. And what Mimi Sheraton said to me at that time, Sandra, somebody needs to be documenting these recipes. And so there was the kernel. Yes. You know? yes. So I started saving recipes. And actually after Katrina, I had so many people contacting me saying, oh my God, we lost all of our recipes. Do you have a recipe for this and for that and for that? And yes, I did, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so I knew there was a need, but life gets in the way, one thing after another, you know. Right. So only in God's good time 
St. Joseph, I'm sure, is leading this charge. When I tell you this whole process of working with LSU Press to develop this book has been extraordinary. Cynthia Lejeune Nobles was my editor. We worked on a daily basis for two years by email. Extraordinary, just mm -hmm. extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So it is so gratifying to me that this book is now part of the Southern Table series of cookbooks, which I think is a wonderful tribute to our Sicilian heritage. It really is. Um, just an amazing process. And so when will we be able to buy a book? Well, the books are online right now for pre-orders through Barnes & Noble, through Amazon, through many sources. But the actual book launch is March the 10th. Okay. So I have two book signings planned that I'm hoping we'll be able to go off without a glitch. On March the 12th, I will be at the lake house in the patio in Mandeville on the lakefront. They have a beautiful patio area. So we'll be seated outdoors. I'm hoping it's a beautiful day right today. That's March the 12th. On March the 20th, the Homeless House um, House and Gardens, which has a beautiful, oh my God, they have three amazing restaurants, uh, a beautiful auditorium. They are doing a special St. Joseph Day event, which will have the Asunta, um, the Dixieland Jazz Band of the Asuntas. They'll have my book signing. Um, Franco Alessandrini, uh, the local artist who did the, the sculpture of the immigrants that's on the riverfront. Yes. He has been commissioned to, to sculpt a piece that will be in tribute to the Sicilians who worked in the cane fields because so many were brought over. So that will be on permanent display when it's completed at Homeless House. It's gonna be an extraordinary happening. So I'll be doing a book signing there. Oh, so. that is absolutely wonderful. That's really great. Yeah. Well, Sandra, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and telling us all of these wonderful stories that you know about St. Joseph Altars and for writing such a terrific book. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams. <laughs>